Our reading this morning is taken from Luke 2, verses 1 to 7, and can be found on page 1027 of your Pew Bibles. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was, was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to, the, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Thanks be to God. Okay, let's pray, shall we? We pray, Father, that as we think about the birth of Jesus, you would enable us to remember things about it that we may have forgotten and to recognize anything that we have previously overlooked. Amen. It probably won't come as any surprise to any of you uh, to hear that I have nothing new to say about that passage. It's very familiar, isn't it? And so all I'm going to do is to draw attention to a few things that I think we ought to just bring to the front of our minds this Christmas. And the first of those is simply to point out that Luke was clearly really keen to place Jesus' birth in its historical and geographic context. In those days, Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, the entire Roman Empire. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David. It's an overload of facts, isn't it? And you may think that uh, the point I'm making is obvious. but, But actually, it is very rare amongst the religions of the world that there is this concern with historicity. That the point is... Uh, we, our faith is based on events in history. Uh, Jesus was born in a particular time, at a particular place. He lived at a particular place and did particular things. The Old Testament stresses, in, indeed focuses on, the acts of God in history. You see, we don't put our faith in a God who created the world and stood back. That's deism, not Christianity. And we don't put our faith in a God who operates at some ethereal, spiritual level that is disconnected from the practical, real world. No. We put our faith in a God who is at work in the world all the time. Now, at that point, I do need to address uh, a, a, an alleged problem in relation to all of this. 
because you may well have heard it said, and it's often said, uh, with, I should add, considerable confidence, that this passage we've heard read, read is a blatant example of the Bible getting something wrong. Uh, It's asserted, as I say, with huge confidence, that Luke was simply wrong, and he was wrong for various reasons. First of all, there was no census of the whole Roman world at the time of Augustus. Second, that even if there was a census, it wouldn't have taken place in Judea because Judea was ruled by King King David. It certainly wasn't. It was ruled by King Herod. It was a vassal kingdom. It wasn't a Roman province, so there wouldn't have been a census there. Third, even if there was a census there, this is a bit like a pleading by a lawyer in court in the alternative. Um, Third, even if there was a census uh, there, Joseph certainly wouldn't have had to go to Bethlehem because in Roman censuses you registered where you lived, not at your town of origin. To cap it all, Luke's got confused Quirinius became governor of Syria in AD 6, at which point, incidentally, we do know he did conduct a census. But Jesus, of course, was born at the time of King Herod, and King Herod couldn't have died later than the spring of 4 BC. Game, set, and match, the Bible is wrong. But wait a minute. Actually, despite the confidence with which that is asserted, the evidence it isn't as simple as that. And, and if any of you are, are very troubled by this, do come and have a word with me afterwards, because I'm quite happy to discuss it in detail. Uh, but for the moment, just note the following. It's absolutely true. We have no other evidence for a, uh, an empire-wide census in the time of Augustus. Uh, but our records are inevitably, 2,000 years later, incomplete. There, there may have been uh, an empire-wide census. More more likely, what Luke is saying here is that Augustus decreed that there should be a program of censuses during his reign in the Roman Empire. And we have evidence of censuses in places as diverse as Gaul, Cyrene, and Egypt. So there's, there's no reason whatsoever why Luke should be wrong here. Uh, And the assertion that it wouldn't have happened in uh, a vassal kingdom is simply wrong. We have evidence of uh, censuses in Syria, Cappadocia, Nabataea, all of which were vassal kingdoms in the same region as Judea. It is true that Roman censuses normally required people to uh, to register in the town of their residence for very obvious practical reasons. But that wasn't the invariable practice. There's evidence from Egypt in AD 104 of a census in which people were asked to go back to their towns of of origin. And as for Quirinius, actually I should say in relation to that bit, bit, Herod was very close to the Roman authorities and the Roman authorities were always a bit sensitive to Jewish sensibilities and it's perfectly conceivable that they would have allowed an exception to their normal practice in this case. And as for Quirinius, well, yes, he did become governor in AD 6, but there are a number of possible explanations for that. First of all, the word that's translated while here, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, can, as the footnote in our Bible says, uh, be translated before. 
Uh, it's translated like that twice in John chapter 1 in our Bibles. Uh, in which case, what Luke would be saying is, uh, this was the first census before the one you know about that Quirinius did in AD 6, which incidentally is mentioned in the book of Acts. But, but also, Quirinius was a really interesting guy. He had a long and fascinating career. He was actually consul back in Rome in uh, 12 BC, and then he spent most of the rest of his career in the Middle East in various posts, and he was a very senior guy. Uh, and there's absolutely no reason why he shouldn't have held senior posts in Syria on more than one occasion. He moved uh, around, and it's by no means unusual for people to, to do that. Uh, indeed, there is a tantalising piece of evidence of a tablet which is, which is broken, which suggests that might well have been the case. Uh, the point is, there's no reason to worry here about the Bible being wrong. I can't prove that Luke was right, but it certainly hasn't been proved that he was wrong. So, point number one, our faith is based on events in history. Point number two... God was working out his long-established plans. When you read this for the first time, perhaps when many people read it for the first time, uh, you may have felt that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was probably just an accident of history, uh, a combination of Augustus's decree, of Quirinius's means of implementing that decree, of Joseph's lineage, and of uh, Mary's pregnancy. But the mention here of David, it being David's town, should alert us to the fact that that's not the case at all. Because for nearly a thousand years, the prophets had been prophesying that God would intervene dramatically through a descendant of King David. And of course, in the 8th century BC, the prophet Micah had prophesied that that descendant of David, the Messiah, God's saviour, would be born in the town of Bethlehem, David's town. You see, Augustus and Quirinius were unconsciously acting as agents of God to fulfil his purpose. I certainly wouldn't have acknowledged it, but they were. And we need to recognise that, not just in relation to Jesus but in relation to our own lives. Rulers and others may seem very powerful on the surface, and relative to us, they may be powerful. But in God's hands, they're instruments through which he can fulfill his purpose. And we need to remember and take comfort from that fact. Point three. We should note the ordinariness of what happened. Oh, oh, yes, there were signs. In particular, the shepherds saw angels, and we'll be looking at that tomorrow morning. Uh, And also, the magi saw a star, which they recognised to be a sign. But for the vast, overwhelming majority of people, including the people in Bethlehem, nothing out of the ordinary happened. This was just an ordinary birth. Uh, uh, Artists 
through hundreds and hundreds of years, have portrayed the scene in Bethlehem in dramatic terms. The baby in the manger with light shining from the baby, illuminating the whole scene. Angels around, worshipping, perhaps a chubby cherub or two in the rafters. And animals enraptured by the scene. And that kind of art may well bring out the significance of what happened. But that significance was hidden. Had we been there, we would not have seen that. Again, probably a statement of the blinding obvious, but we wouldn't. We would have seen an ordinary child in an ordinary birth. Another thing to note in relation to this is that I I do think that preachers sometimes go over the top in stressing the squalor and the poverty of Jesus' birth. Now, of course, by our modern standards, the situation was rather squalid. But but don't forget that the people of Jesus' day couldn't pop out to mother care to buy a Moses basket. (coughs) Actually, come to think of it, nor can we, because they went bust. But you know what I mean. Uh, they They couldn't do that. This was not particularly out of the ordinary. And of course, whilst Jesus, uh, sorry, whilst Joseph and Mary were not rich, we shouldn't forget that Joseph was a skilled craftsman and they probably weren't poor by the standards of their age. They were just ordinary and people in those days by our standards were poor. You see, the point about this is not that Jesus was born as the lowest of the low. He wasn't. The point is that there was nothing special about his birth. He was an ordinary baby. There was nothing to mark him out. His contemporaries would have regarded him as an ordinary baby born to an ordinary couple. Only, of course, he wasn't, was he? He was God. God incarnate. Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, like I have, you may almost take that for granted, not think about it terribly much. We may even have become slightly blasé about it. But if you think about it, it is truly extraordinary. C.S. Lewis called it the grand miracle. The the miracle besides which all other miracles just pale into insignificance. I've long been astonished by uh, the fact that a number of people in the church in England and indeed elsewhere uh, seem to say that they accept that Jesus was God incarnate but then quibble about the feeding of the 5,000 and the turning of water into wine. Wow! Talk about swallowing the camel and straining the gnat. This is the grand miracle. God come to earth as man. God incarnate. The Apostle Paul put it this way in his letter to the Galatians. God sent his son, born of a woman. And John, of course, famously in the first chapter of his gospel said, the word became flesh. And we should note what the Bible is not saying. The Bible doesn't say a spirit, a spirit being, a God as conceived by the pagans, 
became man. No. And what's more, it doesn't use the word God in the rather woolly, vague way that the word divine has come to be used today. Many years ago, when I was at university, a book was published called The Myth of God Incarnate, and it caused quite a storm at the time. Uh, Its thesis is pretty obvious from its title. And the editor of that book, and one of the authors, John Hick, was asked whether he denied the deity of Christ. And this is how he replied. I absolutely do not deny Christ's deity. I would no more deny the deity of Christ than I would deny the deity of any of us. That's not Christianity. That's pantheism. The Bible tells us that Jesus was the God of the Old Testament. I should rephrase that. It tells us that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Yahweh, the one true God. The eternal, uncreated, supreme creator, sustainer, and sovereign of the universe. Jesus is that God And as we've heard, he was born in a stable in Bethlehem, God incarnate. And there's another thing we should be careful of. There may be a danger of us thinking that, yes, Jesus is infinitely above us, but somehow he's he's not quite the same (coughs) as God. He's, He's a little bit below, not quite of the same substance, not quite equal with God. That's, in fact, what's called Arianism, or Arianism, take your pick. But again, it's not what the Bible says. Do you remember what Jesus said? I and the Father are one. The Father there being God the Father, the God to whom the Jews prayed. And then, again, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, The Apostle Paul said he was in very nature God. Or as we say in the longer Nicene Creed, which we didn't say this morning, uh, he was true God from true God. God come as man. God incarnate. We need to make sure we keep hold of that. But, But we need to be careful that as we do so, we don't go to the other extreme... And forget Jesus' humanity. Oddly enough, in the historic church, long before uh, people were denying Jesus' deity, they were denying his humanity. In the second century, the Marcionites said that Jesus' body was a phantom. And a century or so later, um, the Manichees said that he had celestial flesh, whatever that might be. But this account of Luke, of Jesus' birth, points to the fact that that kind of thing is is nonsense. Jesus was, was human. In fact, do you remember after his resurrection, when the apostles were worried that they might be seeing a ghost, he said, a spirit has not flesh and blood as you see I have. Now, as it says in the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus shared our humanity. That's what we're reading about here. 
and, and, and incidentally, when it says he shared our humanity, it means he had a human mind as well. I suspect, though I have no scientific evidence for this, but I suspect that a large number of Christians today, probably without thinking it through terribly thoroughly, sort of regard Jesus as having had a human body and a divine mind, God's mind. But, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible talks about Jesus growing in wisdom and learning obedience. And that's summed up again in the letter to the Hebrews where it says, Jesus is fully human in every way. He was God incarnate, but also fully human. Back in uh, AD 451, there was a council of the church, a gathering of bishops from the entire Christian world in a place called Chalston um, in uh, modern-day Turkey. And that gathering summarised what the Bible says about Jesus in a declaration which came to be known as the Chalstonian definition. And it's worth reading. Uh, actually, I'll only read the first part of it, but, 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 it, but it's, it's, it's worth reading because it represents a distillation of what the Bible says. This is what they said. Following then the Holy Fathers... We unite in teaching all men to confess the one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This selfsame one is perfect in both deity and humanness. This selfsame one is also actually God and actually man with a rational soul and a body. That means a human, human mind. He is of the same reality as God as far as his deity is concerned. He's God. And of the same reality as we ourselves, as far as his humanness is concerned. And thus, like us in all respects, sin only accepted. He's wholly human. Before time began, he was begotten of the Father in respect of his deity. And now in these last days, for us and on behalf of our salvation, this selfsame one was born of Mary the Virgin, who is God-bearer in respect of his humanness. That's it. Holy God and holy human. Of course, philosophers and others have struggled with quite how to deal with that for 2,000 years. But we shouldn't be surprised or disturbed if we can't properly grasp it. We're dealing with the nature of God we will never fully understand or grasp that. But the key point is not whether we fully understand it or grasp it. The key point is whether it's true. And we particularly need to remember that God did not present Mary and Joseph, or for that matter, King Herod, or any of the other Jewish leaders, or Pilate, or any of the Roman leaders, or even the disciples. He didn't present any of these people of Jesus' day with a philosophical proposition to be analysed and grasped. He presented them with a human being. He presented them with a baby who grew up to be the most extraordinary man that has ever lived. And God challenged the people of Jesus' day to look on Jesus, to look at Jesus, to consider his acts and what he said 
and in particular his resurrection and death and resurrection, to draw the obvious conclusion and then to put their faith, put their trust in Jesus and to follow him. And of course, he calls on us here today and indeed everyone out there to do the same thing this Christmas. So let's make sure we do so. Amen.